Hello, I'm Rishi Singh, and welcome to this new Retina radio mini-series, Clinical Impacts from the AAO 2020 Meeting. This is part two of two, and you can go back in your feed and listen to episode one if you'd like to hear my discussion with Drs. Diana Doe and Dr. Jeff Heyer. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussions about the data from the AAO 2020 meeting and review how these updates may affect clinical decision-making. Joining me today are Dr. Justice Ehlers from the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Mark Gillies from Sydney University. Thanks, Rishi. It's, it's great to be here for the discussion today. Yeah, great to be here, Rishi. Justice, you presented uh, your presentation at the AO meeting entitled Fluid Compartment Volatility and Dynamics in Neovascular Treated AMD with Antivegf Therapy. Can you provide the listeners with an overview of your study? Sure, I'd, I'd be happy to. So the rationale for looking at the study was that multiple phase three trials have started to show uh, data that suggests that fluctuation in retinal thickness may be associated with poorer outcomes. And we wanted to dive into that a little bit more and look at specific compartments uh, and see how those fluctuations, such as looking at intraretinal fluid or subretinal fluid, and those specific volatility components may impact uh, overall outcomes uh, in terms of the anatomic features that we see in, in neovascular AMD. We used a special software platform that we've been working to develop here at the Cleveland Clinic that allowed us to use machine learning augmentation to be able to identify some of those features that we don't traditionally uh, look at in uh, most clinical trials. And Justice, tell us a little bit about the data set that was used for the study you did. Sure, so uh, we used the data from the phase two Osprey trial. Uh, this was a prospective randomized trial that compared brilicizumab to a flibercept in approximately 90 patients with wet uh, age-related macular degeneration. In, in this study, uh, patients were observed out to 56 weeks, and, and we looked at this in a treatment agnostic fashion. We were really more interested in fluid and compartment fluctuation than specific drug uh, response. One of the things that we looked at was we essentially allowed the eyes to stabilize for the loading phase, so the first 12 weeks, and then we looked at volatility after those 12 weeks leading up to week 56. You know, this idea of volatility has been talked about a lot in the literature recently, so I'm glad you were able to look at this. You said the OCT uh, was the modality which you looked at. What in, in, in particular uh, what were you looking at with regards to that volatility? So the biggest thing that we were interested in was what's the driver behind the central subfield thickness volatility that most of these other trials have, have looked at. So what we wanted to actually assess was intraretinal fluid changes, subretinal fluid changes, and then also a, a new metric that we're calling the retinal fluid index. What that describes is essentially the percentage of the retinal tissue or retinal thickness that's occupied uh, by a fluid uh, object, whether it's an intraretinal fluid pocket or subretinal fluid area. And we were able to do that uh, over the entire macular cube or within the central subfield and be able to look at this in different regions uh, within the OCT. So Justice, that sounds like an exciting uh, modality to look at, but tell us a little bit about your, the tool you were evaluating it with. You know, there's a lot of uh, artificial intelligence platforms coming out in the near future. What's distinguishing about your tool and maybe how will users see this tool in the future? Yeah, no, thanks for the question, Rishi. You know, I, there's a lot of really uh, exciting opportunities, I think, in diagnostics, and we're already seeing that in ophthalmology. You know, there's a FDA-approved uh, machine learning tool for looking at diabetic retinopathy severity, for example. I think that these areas of development are going to allow us to understand diseases at different levels, you know, whether it's with our tool or, or similar tools that might be developed. 
to really give us a, a better understanding of the phenotype. If we want to look at wet macular degeneration, uh, for example, you know, to be able to understand fluid burden, uh, subretinal material calculations, these may really help us understand prognosis, uh, maybe even understand what might be the best treatment choice, uh, as well as patient education. So I think that overall, it's just going to give us more data uh, to be able to hopefully make better clinical decisions uh, down the road in the future. Uh, you had a lot of findings uh, in this study, Justice, but let's stick to the top line data. What did you find? So thanks, Mark. It, you know, one of the things that, that was most interesting was that when we've seen the, the phase three trials that have looked at this and, and seen poorer outcomes, what we found here was really an anatomic correlate to that. And, and that was that in eyes that had more exudative uh, volatility, we found increased uh, subretinal reflective, uh, hyperreflective material over time, as well as reduced improvement uh, in ellipsoid zone integrity. And I think these are really the anatomic findings that support why those outcomes are, are poorer. Probably one of the most interesting things though is that and subretinal fluid has really been seen as a finding that's, that's associated with better visual acuity. In our analysis, we actually did find though that volatility or instability of that subretinal fluid was one of the things that was most linked with some of these changes. And I think that's something that's gonna be looked at in, in larger data sets in the future and, and will be interesting to see if those findings hold. Justice, that's a fabulous finding from your data. Um, but before we go to break, let's hear from Dr. Mark Gillies, who's going to be talking about his uh, talk at the AO 2020 meeting entitled 10-Year Treatment Outcomes of Neovascular AMD from Two Regions. This was data from the FRB, the Fight Retinal Blindness Found Project, as well as uh, another project as well. And Dr. Gillies will tell us about the presentation. Sure, thanks. So we, we looked at uh, real-world data uh, outcomes of patients from treated in Australia, New Zealand, where they had a treatment extend regimen, and particularly from Zurich, where there's a large centre in our project where they used PRN. And we looked at the mean change in visual acuity at 10 years, and of course, the number of injections and the number of visits. So tell us, Mark, Mark about this data set. How many patients were, for example, in this, this study? There's about 800 eyes uh, that we examined, and about 60% of them had been treated with lucentis all the way through, and there's various combinations of swapping, particularly when aflibercept became available. The visual acuity was approximately 2080 at baseline for the patients who completed the 10 years, but only a small proportion did. 30% of the Australians and only about 12% of the New Zealanders and their vision, the ones that completed, was better than the uh, original cohort, which is more like 624. You know, there's a lot of reasons for patients to stop receiving anti-VEGF therapy. Did your group find any really commonality as far as what prevented them from continuing therapy during the course of this study? Yeah, sure. Uh, there did seem to be some strong predictors. So uh, patients who were older were more likely to drop out. That's pretty obvious. Uh, but also patients with worse baseline visual acuity were, were more likely to drop out. So um, uh, in general, the patients uh, with uh, the younger patients uh, with good visual acuity were more likely to stay in the study. And you said the patients dropped out sometimes because of declines. The patient declining, does that mean that uh, the patient's vision declined or they were too ill uh, to continue treatment or what was the, or the physician declined treating the patient? What was the sort of outcome in this case? We only have a, we have a, a, a list of uh, things that we have to choose for the commonest reason for people uh, in Australia for uh, discontinuing 
is moving to another practice. People tend to start with the retina specialist and then move to the general ophthalmologist uh, down the track when they're stabilised. But you know, certainly uh, at least 40% of patients did drop out either their decision, presumably from a poor response, uh, or because uh, we the doctor felt that further treatment was futile. Smart, this is really outstanding data, you know, especially with the extended time you're able to, to look at these cohorts. And one of the things that we're always uh, wondering about is, is the incidence of macular atrophy in, in this wet AMD population, particularly after they're on extended periods of treatment. Did your group have a chance to explore that uh, in, in this study? Well, this was actually quite interesting because uh, uh, the, the outcomes are very different. The treat and extend regimen patients in Australia, uh, over 10 years, they had the same vision as they started with on average, whereas the Swiss lost three lines, 15 letters. Um, so, and they were treated less aggressively. So in Australia, they had on average five injections a year for 10 years, whereas in Switzerland, it was four injections a year. The Swiss eyes were much more active. So 70% of visits they were active, whereas only 40% of uh, in Australia were they active. As a result, the Australian eyes are more likely to get atrophy because they were less active. The Swiss eyes, hardly any of them got atrophy. They mostly got subretinal fibrosis, which is what you get if it's too active. So we've got a fine line. If you undertreat, you'll get fibrosis, but if you overtreat, you'll get atrophy. Wow, that's really interesting. And that's really great data from both of these presentations. So after the break, we'll discuss how this new information uh, may affect some of our clinical decision-making. Welcome back to Clinical Impacts from the AO 2020 meeting. I'm Rishi Singh here with Dr. Justice Ehlers and Dr. Mark Gillies. And we just heard from data from both of their studies. We'll start off with Dr. Justice Ehlers' studies about fluid fluctuations and wet AMD. And then we'll transition over to Dr. Mark Gillies about the 10-year follow-up from the patients from two populations that he evaluated in his study. Um, when you talk about, uh, Mark, your study results, how does this data from the real world affect your clinical decision-making with your neovascular AMD patients? Oh, thanks, Rishi. So as far as we can see, treat and extend is still the most practical way to achieve best outcomes and give the, uh, the, an adequate number of injections in real-world clinical practice. Uh, clearly, patients need to adhere to treatment. Um, especially younger patients and those with, this, uh, with better vision when you start out. So on the, when we do the first injection, as well as everything else, I tell my patients, start running if you see me in the street, because I'm going to inject your eye every time I see you until one of us dies. You've got to get that message across it uh, early. Uh, Clearly, there's a balance of, uh, as we were saying, between atrophy from overtreatment and fibrosis from undertreatment. I think, in general, still the major problem is fibrosis from undertreatment, but it's the fine line, and this will warrant ongoing investigation through real world studies and perhaps even clinical trials, but it's something that happens in the long term. Uh, personally, I, I tend to tolerate subretinal fluid now. Uh, if that's all there is, but uh, and we have other evidence that this appears to be safe to do, but I haven't presented, but um, further research is warranted to confirm that. Do you think you're inclined to reduce the number of injections uh, based upon age, for example, to reduce macular atrophy, or maybe um, talk to patients better who have better baseline visual acuity 
to make sure they adhere in a fashion, maybe reach out in different ways of the younger patients with better baseline VA. Is there, has this changed that pattern at all as far as the injections and or your back office work, your, maybe your secretaries or somebody else who's contacting these patients to encourage them to come back to your practices? Well, certainly, we we, uh, we tell patients very clearly from the start that they're going to have treatment for the rest of their life. And they, that we're not going to stop this treatment. We don't know how to, to do that. Because some patients you can stop, apparently, but most patients will recur with loss of vision. Um, uh, I think that um, generally the problem remains under treatment. You can't, you have some flexibility with a treat and extend regimen. You have to treat an active lesion. It just depends what you call active. So uh, we don't necessarily reduce intervals any longer for subretinal fluid. So that's treating less, but that's pretty much the only way you can treat less if you follow a treat and extend regimen. You can't sort of not treat an active lesion. You can sort of redefine activity uh, and maybe uh, uh, treat less aggressively where you might have treated more aggressively in the past, but you're still going to need to be doing around five uh, injections a year on average. And some of your patients will be getting, you know, an injection every four weeks forever, and some will get out to four to six months maybe. But on average, the average service that's doing a good job will be giving five injections a year. That's what we think. Mm-hmm. And the comparison actually shows that. And Mark, you, you had a, a population of patients where the treatment was determined to be, for the treatment to be futile. Yeah. Uh, and it was a pretty big number. It was 27%. Yes. So yes. It, it, does this kind of open your eyes as far as maybe future treatments or is this really the, the, the disease state and this is all we can expect from it? This is as good as it gets or do you think this really speaks to the fact that we need new therapies and what those therapies might look like? Well, the interesting thing is that we got much better results in Australia than, New, uh, than Zurich with just one injection more a year. So you don't have to do much more. But you just got to do a little bit more and you can get much better results. That's a sweet spot, we think, five injections a year. Um, I, don't, I can't see myself modifying my, my, my treatment uh, much more uh, based on this. I, I, I still think the problem generally is law, uh, uh, around the world and in Australia is under treatment. Mm-hmm. I think a longer lasting agent would probably uh, improve adherence uh, and uh, that would likely improve outcomes, but we don't know yet. We'll just have to see the results as they start to come in. If people do start using bronchitis on a large scale, we'll, we should be able to determine that within a couple of years. That's great. So we're going to move on and talk about Dr. Ehler's uh, data on fluctuations in fluid in wet AMD patients. And Justice, you presented this really interesting piece of software and showed how just looking at CST alone is not helpful, that you have to look at sort of these compartments of fluid. So help me look, you know, three to five years down the road and how people, uh, clinicians are going to use this data to better inform the decisions. What is this going to look like, you think, in in your mind? And this is totally theoretical. So there doesn't have to be evidence-based necessarily for our discussion right now. Uh, thanks, Rishi. You know, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, you know, when I look at the, the data that we're seeing here, I, I think that the way that this may be most valuable is really getting a better understanding of the phenotype of the patient sitting in front of us. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to some degree, the harmony between what Mark's study showed and what ours did. And that was that when you looked at that PRN regimen that more than likely had greater fluctuation uh, and instability of the exudative activity, there was more subretinal fibrosis, which is also what we were seeing, you know, in just a, a year 
we were be, being able to detect uh, a quantitative increase in, in subretinal material. And so one of the big questions for me is better defining what is fluctuation and what is fluid. We know that subretinal fluid has been associated with better visual acuity overall in, in multiple studies. And we know that from the fluid study, for example, we can tolerate that fluid. But what our study did suggest is that fluctuation of that fluid may not be as tolerated. Um, and so one of the exciting potential areas are things like HOMO-CT and being able to detect on a more frequent basis rather than having patients come into us, what is their retina doing? What's happening during treatment? where we could potentially have a patient take a home OCT and, and have an automated platform for better determining what's happening from these fluid compartments and really look at what's going on in terms of that treatment. You know, for me, when I look at my treat and extend patients, I, I'm often wondering, is that fluid going away and, and coming back or is it just staying stable through that entire you know, period? For example, if we're gonna tolerate you know, what we might call a small amount of, of persistent subretinal fluid. So I think there are a lot of opportunities, particularly around uh, automated characterization uh, of these diseases in, in unique ways. And, and Justice, tell, tell me if there's just any pitfall at all you see in this technology. Is there anything regarding user error or the software itself or anything that might make a difference, do you think, ultimately? I know these are very tested algorithms, but there's obviously some inherently in all AI platforms, there's got to be something that, that potentially might be different, right? So our machine learning algorithms, you know, their performance is really only as good as, as what we put in from a training standpoint. So if the computer hasn't seen, for example, a, a unique uh, signature on the OCT, there certainly can lead to errors. But one of the things that, that we've found is, is most important is really image quality. And so as image quality goes down, and even with OCT, we can see this uh, in terms of signal strength related to maybe cataract, uh, surface abnormalities. Uh, as well as things like hemorrhage. Uh, those are areas where the, the computer and automated algorithms are gonna struggle more. So I think the more uh, sort of structure we can create around what's able to be analyzed in a reliable way uh, and not just trust what comes out, I think those are gonna be important gates uh, to have in place as we potentially begin to rely a little bit more on this technology as it goes forward. That's great. So, so far, you know, we've discussed some of the theoretical data from both of you, uh, but what about you in particular, both Dr. Ehlers and Dr. Gillies, what would you dis, uh, change about your particular decision-making based upon the data uh, we just talked about in your study? So we'll start off with Dr. Gillies and hear about you. You're given your FRB data and the data from Zurich. What would you change about your practice, if anything, or maybe reassure yourself of what you're doing right now, maybe. Well, yeah, I think it is that actually we turned out to win this one. No, something special about us just in Australia. Uh, there's no restrictions on the drug. Uh, the doctors are paid and the, the patients don't have to pay. So uh, it's easy to, to, to uh, treat like uh, the way we do. I think treat and extend is uh, validated again. I was interested in uh, Justice's uh, presentation though. I think this AI thing can be incredibly powerful incredibly powerful, but we have to realize we're just at the start of this and nobody's proven to me that it's any better than a clinician at the moment. And people are speaking as if it is because it's a computer, but that's not the case. I think we've got to look very hard to see what the actual role of AI will be. And we've got to test to make sure that it is actually giving us better outcomes than we're currently getting doing what we're doing. It may not, we'll see. 
Mm -hmm. And Justice, given your data from your excellent study, is there anything that you would change or were you just reassured about your current practice pattern? Uh, well, I think there are a couple of things that I, I take away. You know, the one is something that we've touched a little bit on uh, throughout this discussion, and this is this idea of, of tolerating some amount of persistent fluid. Um, so I, I primarily treat with Cretin XN, um, and there are those patients where we don't seem to be completely drying the fluid, and, and sometimes that can uh, persist, and, and we, we trust that we just can't uh, treat it to completely go away. And so I'm a little bit more careful about assessing whether or not that's actually accurate. You know, is this fluid that's actually completely resolving, you know, with the injection and then, you know, coming back, or is this truly persistent static fluid that may represent more of a degenerative fluidic change rather than an, an actual active and undertreated, uh, as, as, as Mark alluded to, you know, CNB. Uh, I, and so that that's probably the biggest thing. The, the, as an offshoot of that, it's also going down just the importance of education to patients uh, around the, the pitfalls of undertreatment, you know, and what that can lead to uh, over time. I, I think that this reinforces that. Uh, and then the last thing, you know, to, to go a little bit more into to what Mark was saying around uh, the machine learning and the AI piece of things, I, I couldn't agree more that we are really just at the beginning of understanding what role does this have for us uh, in our field. Um, you know, to think that it's going to be a pure clinical decision-making tool that, that is, supersedes us as clinicians, I think right now it is so far away from that. Uh, you know, my suspicion is that it's going to augment the information that we have to make the best decisions for, for our patients and potentially open doors to understanding uh, data, for example, or our images in ways that we couldn't before, you know, whether it's with angiography or, or OCT. So I agree. I think we have a tremendous amount to learn. And, and this is really over the next, you know, I suspect, you know, five years or even more is, is where we're going to really begin to understand the role of that technology uh, in our clinical practices. Thank you both for that wonderful information. And that's it for us in this episode of the mini-series Clinical Impacts from the AO 2020 meeting. Remember to go back and listen to part one if you want more of this content. Until next time, I'm Rishi Singh.